Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week in place of vets and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is kids' football matches, but it's about much more than that, as I'll get to. This is in the Daily Mail. Parents are ordered not to cheer their children at football matches during Silent Weekend Initiative in a bid to take pressure off youngsters. Parents are being banned from shouting out at children's football matches this weekend in a bid to take pressure off youngsters and quell violent incidents. Mothers and fathers have been issued with a code of conduct to adhere to while still on the touchline at youth games. They must remain silent during the games and are not allowed to cheer, gloat or antagonise the opposition or question the referee. A separate list of do's and don'ts has also been issued to team managers who have been told not to coach players during play or put down players. Anyone who falls foul of the rules will be asked to leave the park either by referee or nominated respect steward. The Silent Weekend Initiative is being organised by the Hampshire FA and is aimed at creating a positive environment for kids to play in and make them feel less anxious. It is also hoped to reduce any tensions between parents that can sometimes erupt into ugly brawls on the sidelines. One local referee who was back in the campaign cited a recent incident involving a father who punched a linesman in protest against a decision at an under-12s game. Blair Gissing, a 20-year-old Portsmouth-based official, said only the once have I seen parents getting violent, but it was a very serious incident when a parent punched a linesman. I gave a foul against one of the players, and the next thing I knew, the mums on the sidelines started shouting abuse at me, and then some of the dads got involved. One of them assaulted my assistant referee, and the kids on the pitch were stunned. It was only an under-12s game. I think anything to get better control among parents can only be a good idea. Although acts of physical violence are reasonably rare, verbal abuse is pretty common. The FA Silent Weekend is a recent initiative staged once a season by individual county FAs. The Hampshire FA's one is being held today and Sunday for matches involving under 10 through to under 16 age groups. A spokesman for the Hampshire FA said together with the Youth and Mini Soccer Committee we are encouraging clubs and leagues to participate in the Silent Weekend. Fixtures taking place this weekend will involve coaches and spectators remaining silent throughout games to raise awareness of the need to create a positive and pressure-free environment in which children can enjoy football and learn to love and develop in the game. We hope this will encourage all to take part and spread awareness of this fantastic initiative. The silent weekend comes days after the University of Manchester Students' Union ban clapping in favour of jazz hands as the noise of applause could trigger anxiety among some students. And here's an article in The Independent about that. Clapping replaced with jazz hands. Where did the action come from and what other alternatives are there? The University of Manchester made waves recently. Clever, waves. The University of Manchester made waves recently when its students' union announced it would be encouraging students to replace clapping with jazz hands at events. Jazz hands is the British Sign Language expression of clapping, and the university union hopes that by doing away with clapping, whooping and cheering, events will be more accessible to people suffering from anxiety and those with hearing problems. I've said before that I've seen anxiety. For a little while now, I've seen anxiety cropping up more and more and more. Even celebrities are talking about how they suffer with anxiety. I saw a tweet from someone today, one celebrity, talking about it. And watch for it being used as an excuse to stop certain things. I mean, as it says here, the union hopes that by doing away with clapping, whooping and cheering, events will be more accessible to people suffering from anxiety, as well as those with hearing problems. So watch for anxiety being used. Where it's coming from, 
Here's another question. Anyway, the article goes on. But where did this decision come from and what other alternatives to clapping are there? In British Sign Language, what's technically known as silent jazz hands is the action to show applause. It involves waving both hands by the size of your body around shoulder face height. The action was created not only because deaf people wouldn't be able to hear clapping, but also because people often clap their hands in their laps or at a waist level, which isn't always easy to see. It's thought the action originated in France, where deaf people would wave their napkins in the air at banquets to show applause and approval. The decision has been made in order to be more inclusive. According to student newspaper The Mancunion, as in Union... Mancunian. The motion to replace clapping and cheering with jazz hands received little opposition from the University Senate when it was raised on September 27th. However, the National Union of Students has actually been encouraging delegates to applaud with jazz hands rather than clapping since 2015. What's more, in 2017, the NUS said there would be consequences for students who clap and whoop at events following requests for people to stop. However, the move was also criticised by some who pointed out that blind people cannot hear jazz hands. Whilst clapping is one of the main ways applause is expressed across the world and jazz hands are used in British Sign Language, they're not the only forms of ovation. In Germany, for example, and in schools in particular, applause is often expressed by knocking on tables or desks with your knuckles. Similarly, in newsrooms, there's a tradition of cheering someone out of the office, which is known as banging out. Employees bang their hands on the desks as a colleague leaves the room on their last day at the company. In recent years, clicking your fingers has been adopted in place of clapping. Snapping repeatedly for a sustained several seconds is a way for audience members and clashing denizens to express approval without completely disrupting a lecture, speech or performance they wrote. It seemed to be a quiet rather than silent signal of agreement. Well, in terms of the football story, if this was an initiative by a random local league, you might say, well, wrapping the players in cotton wool. But it's only a local league, so what does it matter? But this is an FA initiative, the Football Association in England the governing body of football in England. So this is an FA initiative, which means it's going to be rolled out in different leagues across the country. When I used to play football when I was a kid, either in the park or for teams, I played in a couple of teams, sometimes it got tough, but you just adapted and went with it because that's what you have to do if you're going to play football. This raises an interesting point because my best mate lived next door to me and his brother and the three of us, plus mates of theirs, would go out and play football or whatever in the park or wherever we played it virtually every day and we were allowed to go anywhere on our own and of course nowadays parents are afraid to let their kids play out because of what they fear might happen to them but you learn through experience there's a great episode in series four of black mirror it deals with this which i've mentioned before but it's worth mentioning again because it does it so well called archangel highly recommend it in terms of this initiative how are young players going to make it to the top if they're brought up playing in pressure-free environments how are they going to make it to the top when their manager can only be encouraging? You can't bring kids up in pressure-free environments and then, if they're good enough, progress up the ranks. Suddenly you plonk them in a situation where there is pressure. Because to make it to the top, you have to be able to handle pressure. End of story. That's the difference between kids kicking a ball about in the park and elite sport. And people might say, yeah, but we're talking about kids. But this is an FA initiative, not a random local league initiative. The stars of the future start off in local leagues and smaller leagues, then they progress up the ranks to the lower divisions, like League 1 or 2 in this country, and then maybe the Championship, and if they're lucky, the Premier League. If you're a player, and you want to do that, and you have to handle pressure. If your team's losing 1-0 with 10 minutes to go, and it's raining, and you're playing away, and your team needs to win to get into the playoffs to play a series of matches to try and get promoted into a higher division, how are you going to deal with that scenario unless you're able to deal with pressure? Because that is a high pressure situation. 
even more so if it's a relegation battle where if you lose you get relegated the only way to cultivate the kind of players necessary to deal with situations like that is to bring them up from being a kid facing pressure and criticism it says in the article that it's basically about creating a silent pressure-free environment well when you're playing in the big leagues you've got the crowd and sometimes the crowd are going to shout out some very obscene things and there's no respect steward there you either deal with it or you don't this is the same principle as bringing in a new initiative in boxing that you're only allowed to pretend to punch the other boxer yeah you can make it safer by all means especially with kids but at some point if you're serious you're in that ring with a rising star of boxing and the gloves are off metaphorically you can only be prepared for that situation if you faced real physical preparation before that and likewise, you can only make it in football to any extent by facing pressure, situations and criticism before the point when it gets serious. Gary Neville, former Man United and England footballer, winner of many, many top trophies, described this situation brilliantly in a clip which I'd include when I upload this episode to Podomatic. This, in its wider context, although not directly related, is making a contribution to the agenda to breed a generation of people starting in childhood who are unable to deal with high pressure situations not just in sport or in games but in life we're seeing this with the attack on masculinity they call it toxic masculinity because men are afraid to show emotion or to admit they feel emotion well a lot are not afraid but that's the thin end of the wedge that's not where it's designed to end that's just the foot in the door it's all part of the agenda to delete masculinity in terms of the standing up and being counted, the standing up to oppression and injustice response. And it's happening. One of the reasons is testosterone rates are falling in men. But it's not only men. Women also have testosterone. And it's being targeted in both sexes, not just physically, but also by changing the perceptions and therefore behaviour of both sexes to reduce the impact of testosterone in terms of refusal to take any crap. Both sexes can express that, but the idea is to delete that response. The idea is to get people afraid of life, basically. To get them to look to authority, to protect them from what they fear. To provide them with a safe space, a trigger-free zone. This is what this clapping story is about, this generation snowflake that we're seeing emerge now. Which is what we're seeing in universities, in this country, in America and authority will be very happy to provide it because what safe spaces and trigger-free zones are also are areas where any any information challenging the official narrative and challenging political correctness is not seen or heard that's what they're about in truth also taking this to another level again i've mentioned before a branch of genetic research called epigenetics and this basically means that acquired traits like personality and other environmental and experiential influences can be passed on down the generations. I explained in episode 24 how the body is a computer and basically the DNA, the genetics, is like the hard drive of the body computer. And what epigenetics means is that the change is not brought about by physically, structurally changing or mutating the DNA, but by the processing of the information of the experience which is stored in the DNA, that information, and passed on to the next generation. So what we're seeing now is the creation of Generation Snowflake and then the inheritance of Generation Snowflake by the next generation. 
So generations and effect just keeps being passed on down to generations unless an experience changes a person's perception. And that will happen with some people, of course it will, but generally most people will inherit the snowflake mentality and keep it for their entire lives and thus pass on to the next generation. Another name for this is genetic memory, which is similar. All around us now we're seeing contributions, either direct or indirect, to the agenda to get rid of the stand-up and be counted response and to get people to hand over power over their and others' lives to the state to protect them from what they fear. And that only ends in one way, tyranny. And the next subject this week is artificial sweeteners. This is in the Daily Mail. Ditch the Diet Coke. Six artificial sweeteners used in a range of soft drinks and foods are toxic to gut bacteria. Artificial sweeteners found in Diet Coke and other soft drinks could damage your gut bacteria, research suggests. Scientists found six sweeteners, all approved for use in foods and drinks in the US and EU, were toxic to gut microbes. They included the controversial aspartame, which has been at the centre of critical reports dating back decades. It is used in Diet Coke. Researchers from Israel and Singapore warned the findings offer further evidence that artificial sweeteners can damage health. A healthy gut microbiome has been associated A healthy gut microbiome has been associated with everything from improved hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, digestion and immune system function. The microbiome is the combined genetic material of the microorganisms like bacteria in a particular environment. In this case the gut. As well as aspartame, the scientists also assessed sucralose, saccharin, or sacharin, neotame, advantame, and acetylphane potassium K. Well, neotame and advantame, I've read, and I don't know if it's true, but I've read are basically different names for aspartame. It may very well be true, I don't know. The 10 sports supplements that contain these sweeteners were also analysed for the study published in the journal Molecules. The study was led by a team at Ben Gurion University of the Negev and Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. In their laboratory trial, all six of the sweeteners were exposed to bacteria that are commonly found in the human gut. These bacteria were genetically modified to contain fluorescent compounds that glow when they detect toxins. The researchers discovered toxins are released when gut bacteria are exposed to artificial sweeteners in the lab. It took only one milligram per milliliter of the artificial sweeteners to turn the bacteria toxic. And the higher the amount of artificial sweetener, the more toxins that are released according to the team led by Professor Ariel Kushmaro. He said this is further evidence that consumption of artificial sweeteners adversely affects gut microbial activity which can cause a wide range of health issues. The results of this study might help in understanding the relative toxicity of artificial sweeteners and the potential of negative effects on the gut microbial community. The article goes on. Diet drinks account for a quarter of the sweetened beverages market, but there is growing evidence that they are not as healthy as previously thought. Although marketed as a diet-friendly alternative to sugary drinks, scientists say they should no longer be regarded as a healthier alternative. Artificial sweeteners have repeatedly been linked to obesity, cancer, type 2 diabetes, migraines and even liver toxicity. The sweeteners are also emerging as environmental pollutants due to them being resistant to wastewater treatment processes. Professor Kushimaro added the findings could also help to detect the damage that artificial sweeteners have on the environment. Aspartame has established itself as an important component in many low-calorie sugar-free foods and beverages. It is consumed by more than 
200 million people around the world and is found in more than 6,000 products, it was reported in 2015. These include carbonated soft drinks, powdered soft drinks, chewing gum, dessert mixes, puddings and fillings, and some vitamins and sugar-free cough drops. Aspartame is a nutritive sweetener made by joining two amino acids. Very little is needed for a sweet taste, making aspartame virtually non-caloric. It is thought to be up to 200 times sweeter than sucrose. More people may be opting for artificially sweetened drinks after a sugar tax on soft drinks was introduced in the UK on April the 6th. That's one of the, that's one of the main reasons they brought in the sugar tax. Drinks with more than 8 grams of sugar per 100 milliliters are taxed 24p per litre. Those containing 5 to 8 grams of sugar per 100 milliliter are hit with a lower rate of tax of 18p per litre. Many drink manufacturers have slashed the amount of sugar in their drinks in order to escape the tax. And how many replace it with aspartame and other sweeteners? What are the fears over sweeteners and what does the science show? In an era of obesity and diabetes, there is more focus on sweeteners and sugar alternatives than ever before. But some in the scientific community say the jury is still out on the effects of sweeteners and more research is needed. Obesity and Diabetes, a study published in April this year from the Medical College of Wisconsin and Marquette University linked artificial sweeteners to obesity and diabetes, claiming sweeteners change how the body processes fat and uses energy. Researchers fed groups of rats diets high in sugar or artificial sweeteners including aspartame and acesulfame potassium. After three weeks, blood samples showed significant differences in concentrations of biochemicals, fats and amino acids. Gut bacteria. Leading gut microbiome expert Professor Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College, has warned that if you give animals lots of sweeteners, you get a reduction in diversity of the microbes and they produce abnormal chemicals, different metabolic signals, which have been shown to be more likely to give you diabetes and make you put on weight. He adds that while there's no hard evidence yet in humans, he has seen enough to make him wary of regularly eating these additives, or drinking them, presumably, as well. Stroke and dementia. Consuming a can a day of low or no sugar soft drink is associated with a much higher risk of having a stroke or developing dementia, researchers claimed last year. A Boston University study found that people who plug diet drinks daily were almost three times as likely to develop stroke and dementia when compared to those who did not. However, the researchers were quick to point out that these findings, which appear separately in the journals Alzheimer's and Dementia and Stroke, demonstrated correlation but not cause and effect. Well, I've been saying for the best part of 10 years now that artificial sweeteners, especially aspartame, are dangerous to health. And more than that, especially aspartame is an excitotoxin, meaning it excites brain cells and over a period of time wears them out, basically. And it was great to see this finally come out in the mainstream media, where it says in the art school that aspartame and artificial sweeteners have been repeatedly linked to obesity, cancer, type 2 diabetes and migraines. I've been aware of that for a long time now. The diet, food and drink operation is a scam because you market products as being fat-free and sugar-free. People buy them and consume them and in the process of consuming them they're taking in these artificial additives like aspartame which by the way has been shown to cause weight gain ironically as it says in the article. By the way, in case you're wondering where aspartame ultimately comes from, it's derived and a patent confirms this. Aspartame is derived from the excrement of genetically modified bacteria. That's just the kind of thing you want to consume, isn't it? Something that's derived from genetically modified bacteria. Aspartame is a neurotoxin. 
in other words, a brain toxin. And in a sane world run for the people, aspartame would never be used in food and drink, but because we live in a world where society is run for the elite and their agenda for human control and suppression, aspartame and other artificial additives are used constantly. It's amazing how little things like safety checks and testing don't happen when it suits the elite's agenda for them not to happen. We see this with smart meters, which I talk about in episode 1 and 17, and 5G, which I talk about in episode 12, both of which have not received safety testing. Even the American Cancer Association says on their website that smart meters have not received any testing to see if they're safe. And 5G has been admitted not to have had safety testing. Why? Because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven, and the agenda is for depopulation. So if you have an agenda for depopulation, you have to hit people on as many fronts as you can to attack their health and also their mental capacity so they don't see what's really going on as clearly and sharply as they otherwise would. Aspartame contributes to both of those goals. We live in an inversion. So much of society is an inversion and that's not by accident but by design because the agenda is to transform and invert human society because that suits the elite for it to be that way. So as time goes by, the world will become increasingly inverted as more and more of the agenda continues to manifest in society. Or people become aware and reverse the inversion and bring the whole thing to an end, which we can because there's an enormous number being subjected to the control, manipulation and suppression and a tiny few ultimately behind all the control, manipulation and suppression. That's not to say that only a tiny few are doing it, obviously not, but that a tiny few are ultimately behind it and know how all the contributions some from people who know, most of them from people who don't know. They know how all the contributions fit together to form the picture. And you can only understand the picture if you know the agenda and what techniques are used to manipulate the agenda into society. And I'm going to be doing a separate episode on that at some point. Once you know those two things, society and the world becomes an open book. Because society is agenda driven, not people driven. And the next subject this week is Silicon Valley. This is an interesting article, this. This is in the Daily Mail. Former Google boss launches scathing Silicon Valley attack, urging tech giants to end the delusion that it's making the world a better place. But of course, I've been talking about Silicon Valley for much of pay-per-view, and it's interesting to see someone of Silicon Valley talking about it in a way that kind of syncs with what I've been saying, although I go a lot further. But anyway, here is um, what it says. A former Google boss has launched a withering attack on the firm, calling technology giants deluded. Jessica Powell said she had become tired of defending the company in her role as its top PR chief. This is an industry that takes itself far too seriously and its own responsibility not seriously enough, she added. She says, I want Silicon Valley to end the self-delusion and either fess up to the reality we are creating or live up to the vision we market to the world each day. Because if you're going to tell people you're their saviour, you'd better be ready to be held to a higher standard. Miss Powell 40 launched a searing criticism in an essay and satirical novel, both published this week, which together paint a damning portrait of the Silicon Valley culture. She said, we go about saying that we're building these amazing things and doing great things for the world, but we're also causing a lot of serious problems. There is a real problem that we have black and white thinking, that we lead with data all the time. You say, oh, well, of two billion users, maybe a small percentage of them are bad actors. In other words, people posting or doing or saying things through social media, for example, that are criminal or hateful, etc. And she goes on to say, it's very easy to forget that that's electoral interference. Well, I guess that's maybe in reference to Russia, but that's not been proven with any evidence. 
That's live stream suicides. That's Myanmar. It's really horrific stuff. Her powerful assault is the first of its kind to come from someone so senior at Google and one of very few to come from Silicon Valley where executives keep to a code of secrecy. Why? The former journalist who has three children said she had been tempted to publish her novel, The Big Disruption, under a pseudonym but felt an obligation to break the silence. At a time when tech is under scrutiny for a number of issues, and quite rightly so, I would say, for reasons I talk about in episode 11 and I talked about before, it's important that those of us who can speak up publicly do so without the comfortable cloak of anonymity, she said. Her essay paid tribute to the talented people she worked with at Google and some of the products it has built. But more than a year while from her departure, Ms. Powell is scathing about big technology companies. In one thinly veiled attack, she accused them of using the sheer size of their platforms as an excuse not to fix problems. In other words, these Silicon Valley tech giants, social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, owned by Google, which are nearly all, if not all of them, connected to DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, which obviously interlocks with the intelligence arena in America. I've talked about that in episode 19. One example of that that was made public was a lady called Regina Duggan, who left DARPA and joined Google as an executive, and then joined Facebook. And what she was doing was leaving one organization fundamentally involved in the technological transhuman agenda to go to another and then another in the form of Google and Facebook. And Google and Facebook are open about their involvement with artificial intelligence and robots, technology, etc. These companies are monsters, as I've said before. And when you're fundamentally connected to DARPA, it's hardly a surprise. If Google and Facebook did not exist, the intelligence arena would have had to have invented them. That's why they did. And I'm going to get into all the reasons they would have for wanting Google and Facebook to exist after I've read the article. The article goes on. Her essay paid tribute to the talented people she worked with at Google and some of the products it has built. But more than a year on from her departure, Ms. Powell is scathing about big technology companies. In one thinly veiled attack, she accused them of using the sheer size of their platforms as an excuse not to fix problems. She's talking about the monopoly that these Silicon Valley giants have and problems people might have with them. It's like, okay, you don't like what we're doing, but where are you going to go instead? That's the idea. Build up these companies, make them a monopoly, and then people have got next to no choice about what platform to use. If you said to people, most people in the world, because we're talking about a global monopoly almost now that Facebook has, give me five other social media platforms apart from Twitter that you would use if you got fed up of using Facebook. How many of them could give you five? How many of them could give you three? How many of them could give you one? That's the idea. She said, you can't go about telling your advertisers that you can target users down to the tiniest pixel, but then throw your hands up in front of the politicians and say your machines can't figure out if bad actors are using your platform. The article goes on. Google has been widely criticized for allowing jihadists, far-right extremists, and other hate preachers to post content on its YouTube video platform. In some cases, it funneled cash from advertisers to the extremists posting videos. This is monetization, where if you reach a certain audience and you're videos are popular enough you can get monetized and some people in 
what's become known as the alternative media who are communicating the kind of content I do or other content couldn't get some kind of a living to allow them to do their work full time but this is an important point here this is a very interesting and important point with massive implications for human freedom it's all about getting a foot in the door your target is to censor any speech challenging the official narrative as I've said many times before but you can't just go there straight away even with the monopoly that Google and Facebook has you still can't go there straight away so you've got to get a foot in the door and the foot in the door is you say to people we've got to stop jihadists we've got to stop people inciting terrorism and violence online and people say yeah well of course yeah that's fair enough yeah you got to do that we can't have that but the point is that once you start censoring speech before the point of delivery you're handing power over to an authority who will always abuse that power the idea is not to stop violence and terrorism online that's just the front I mean Google and Facebook might say they want to do that but they don't care they know the real goal of it is to censor people challenging the official narrative of politics or whatever those are the people they want to censor and those are the people they are censoring ever more effectively if they really wanted to censor jihadists if they really wanted to censor people inciting violence they would have gone after those people already because they're going after people who are the people they really want to go after now and ever more effectively so why are they going after those people and not jihadists and not people inciting violence because those people are the real target they say oh we can't go after people inciting violence because there's so much content it's so hard to do it well they can go after people challenging the official narrative easily enough and ever more effectively it's no problem for them then when they want to target people or when something's posted that they say has to be removed because of community guidelines and it's against our values but it's not against their values to leave people inciting violence and jihadists alone to the extent that they have that's fine they've got no problem with that but someone posting a political video or someone posting a video saying something different to the official narrative they've got to go after those people they've got to or rather more accurately they've got to go after the information it's the information they're going after not the people so why is there this massive imbalance when it should be the people inciting violence that they should or the information inciting violence that they should be targeting because the real target is the information challenging the official narrative so you've got to get the foot in the door the foot in the door is we want to stop people inciting violence and terrorism because they know people are going to be for that everyone's going to be for that so that you get for then you expand out into non-violent extremism which is what people like Theresa May and David Cameron have pointed out and non-violent extremism is basically a phrase that means people challenging the official narrative you call it extremism and therefore people are going to be for it again so that that's the next foot in the door that's the next step and then you go to hate speech and hate speech is another word for anything not politically correct hate speech against migrants hate speech about transgender hate speech about any political correctness subject they don't want people to be not politically correct about so that's the next step and you keep going and going and going until basically the only freedom of expression left is that which conforms to the official narrative that's what happens 
when you start censoring speech before the point of delivery. Now that's not to say that social media platforms should not make more of an effort to censor material inciting violence and terrorism. They should. I agree with that. They should go after that. But that it should be done after it's been posted, not before. So there's no screening process. There's no authority who can intervene in the delivery of that message. Because once there is, that authority will turn its attention to the real target, which is people saying things they don't want other people hearing under the cover of going after terrorism and violence. It's got to be done after the point of delivery. And that's not to say that I'm for violence and terrorism or not, but there's a difference between saying that violence and terrorism should be regulated, as it should, after the point of delivery, and saying that people can say anything without any checks. I'm not saying there should not be any checks and balances, but the checks and balances should come in after the point of delivery. There's already laws against inciting violence. There's already laws against inciting terrorism. There's already laws against racism and genuine hate speech. But those laws are for after the point of delivery, not before. May our talk goes on. But the firm has repeatedly told MPs it cannot stop problem content because of the sheer volume of videos that are uploaded to YouTube. Well, they've got no problem censoring at the moment, ever more effectively, all the time, when it's something that they really want to target. The article goes on. Miss Powell was in charge of the company's response to the criticism and reporting directly to Google's chief executive, Sundar Pichai. Her decision to quit the lucrative role in August last year surprised many in the industry. At the time, Miss Powell claimed she was leaving to go back to university to study creative writing. However, in her essay published for free on the Medium website, she admitted she needed to take a break from the issues that I got tired of defending at parties. She said, on the surface, things seem really important and exciting. You were doing big things, bringing the internet to the developing world. Now, that's an interesting one. Bringing the internet to the third world. Now, on one level, that would seem to be a good thing, but they're not bringing the internet to the third world. They're bringing the technological agenda which fundamentally involves the internet and Wi-Fi to the third world. That's what they're bringing to the third world. They're laying the groundwork to allow the technological agenda to take place there as it's designed to take place here in the so-called developed world. The quote goes on, but also on some level it all felt a bit off, like when you go on vacation and find yourself wondering when it's going to feel like the Instagram pics other people have posted. Miss Powell also leveled criticism at Amazon and Facebook. Well, the key thing, as I've said before, is the Silicon Valley giants know the consequences of their actions. That's why they're doing it. This, again, is another reminder that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. People are not the main concern when it comes to changes in and the direction of society. The elite's agenda is what drives the direction of human society. When you look at what Silicon Valley's doing, it's a wish list for the elite's agenda. You've got the gathering of fine detailed data of people's lives through social media, and what's more, you don't even have to spy on people or do it covertly. The people through social media are giving you that information. Fine detail of where they are, where they're going, who they're meeting, what they're doing and when, what they think, their political persuasions, their lifestyle choices, 
everything through one or two social media platforms encompassing a vast amount of the global population. As I said, they don't have to, but they are using covert means, not least through AI assistance like Alexa and other means to listen to conversations. People will be talking about a certain product, for example, or messaging each other through social media, and they'll go onto Facebook and they'll see an advert for that product. The question is, what else are they listening to people talking about? And where is that information going? You know, it's come out through the Cambridge Analytica scandal that Facebook is passing information to advertisers. But do we really believe that the information is only going to advertisers? Of course it's going to the intelligence arena because, because these social media giants are fundamentally connected to the intelligence arena. You've also got the online censorship, which I was just talking about, of Google, Facebook and YouTube in different ways. Sometimes it's ghost banning where you can post, but the algorithms make sure hardly anyone sees what you posted. You've got Google manipulating search engine results to push down certain pages or websites in the listings. And you've got outright banning on the basis of the content being against the so-called shared community values of these platforms, as if they have any. And that's not to say that everybody working in Silicon Valley knows the agenda and is knowingly and willingly working towards it. Of course not. There's going to be some people who are clueless and are just told they're doing it because of whatever reason they're told they're doing it for. There's going to be people like Jessica Powell, who this article is quoting, who leave and see at least some of the bigger picture. There's going to be people like her who see the bigger picture but carry on in their jobs because it's their job and somehow sleep at night and then go to work the next day. But I'm sure at least a certain number of them will have family and that family's going to have to live in the world that they're contributing towards every day. And then there's those people in Silicon Valley who know the agenda or at least to an extent know the agenda and are knowingly and willingly working towards it. So there's variations of the kind of people working in Silicon Valley, but the point is the overall direction of Silicon Valley is very sinister. Also through Silicon Valley, this is the most fundamental, important aspect of what Silicon Valley is doing. Through Silicon Valley, with through being the operative word, and its fundamental connection with DARPA, which obviously interlocks with the intelligence agency network in America, being itself the technological development arm of the Pentagon. DARPA. You've got the artificial intelligence and the technological transhuman agenda being advanced massively by not least Google and Facebook. So Silicon Valley is dreamland for the elite and their agenda. And when people realise this, that we can get a much greater fix on the planned direction of the world and human society and why human society is as it is. And the fact that society is agenda driven, not people driven. final subject this week is more demonization of Russia. This is in the Daily Mail. Russian bots target British teenagers. Kremlin-backed trolls use stars like Emma Watson to spread discord in the West with onslaught of viral memes on feminism, vaccines and GM foods. Kremlin-backed trolls have been targeting Western teenagers with memes featuring celebrities and Harry Potter characters It has emerged. Twitter accounts run from Russia have gathered thousands of young British followers targeting impressionable youngsters with posts about a range of issues including Brexit, feminism and the Salisbury nerve agent attack. Moscow-based accounts have also sought to sow fears in the West with Twitter campaigns undermining public confidence in vaccines and genetically modified foods. Highlighting the issue of GM crops may be intended to foster divisions between Europe and the United States where they are more widespread, reports the Times. The Russian trolling campaign has also spread to YouTube, where Western teenagers have been exposed to a channel labelled the Blue Peter of Russian propaganda. In one meme shared on Twitter, Harry Potter actress Emma Watson is quoted as saying, 
that feminism had become synonymous with man-hating. One teenager told the newspaper the Russian-sponsored memes looked believable, saying if I saw one of these on my social media, I would probably send it to one of my group chats, not even realizing where it came from and its purpose. An expert in Russian disinformation from Clemson University, South Carolina, said what they're doing is political warfare on an industrial scale, and it's aimed at all Western democracy. It's well-funded, it's dangerous, and it is hiding in plain sight. Well, that's assuming it's Russia. No evidence presented to say that it is. One Russian-backed campaign targeting GM crops used the profile of an attractive young woman who called herself Organic Erica to praise Russia's anti-GM stance. Why does that mean it's Russia? Because the name is Organic Erica. Erica sounds a bit Russian. Well, yeah, but Erica could be an American name. Canadian. Australian. Could be other countries apart from Russia. The account reportedly sent the same pattern of messages every day, suggesting it was an automated bot. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that what may appear to be bots, which are basically computer programs that run an automated task without a person needing to be actually doing it, what may appear to be bots from one country can be bots from another country to be blamed on a target country. So in other words, what may appear to be Russian bots could be bots from British intelligence or American intelligence to blame on Russia. I'm not saying that's the case, but we have to keep an open mind to all possibility. The article goes on. The experts said the bikini troll has become one of Moscow's leading methods of gaining followers in the West. Many of the GM-related tweets were linked to the Internet Research Agency, which has also been accused of spreading fake news during the 2016 presidential election. Some troll accounts have also promoted wilder theories, including a flat earth and a chemtrails conspiracy, alleging that planes spread chemicals behind them for secret government purposes. Well, I talk about chemtrails in episode 11. Last year, it emerged that an account wrongly accusing a Muslim woman of ignoring the victims of the Westminster terror attack was run from Russia. A viral photograph of the Muslim woman accused her of walking past the injured victims while checking her mobile phone, but the photographer later revealed she was calling for help, and a later frame showed her visibly distressed. Well, how do we know it was run from Russia? The account was later revealed as a Russian bot in a list published by American Democrats. Well, you can trust them then, prompting Twitter to shut the account down. The latest claims come after days of revelations about Russian intelligence officers' attempts to hack the international body investigating the Novichok attack. Dutch authorities disclosed on Thursday how they thwarted an attempted cyber attack on the headquarters of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in The Hague. Well, that story keeps changing every five minutes, the Novichok attack, Salisbury, Russian agent poisoning story. And if it is Russia, and if evidence is provided, real evidence, that shows that Russia was behind it, then I'll sit here and say, okay, fair enough, it was the truth all along. They were behind the attack, okay, fair enough, they did it. But that's not happened yet. They have not yet produced sufficient evidence. And why would Putin, even if Russia did do it, cyber hat the headquarters of the organization with the prohibition of chemical weapons in The Hague, thus putting themselves more in the frame and giving the West another reason to demonize them? That makes sense. The article goes on. Moscow has called the accusations another orchestrated act of propaganda as part of an anti-Russian campaign of spy mania. Earlier this week, it was claimed that most of the Twitter accounts blamed for spreading false information during the 2016 election in America are still active. Researchers believe the fake news accounts are still publishing more than a million tweets a day, just weeks before the US votes in midterm elections. The study by the Knight Foundation, which found as many as 70% of the fake news accounts may be bots, comes in spite of Twitter's claims that it has cracked down on bogus accounts, many of which have been linked to Russia. Well, this is more demonization of Russia. 
I've talked about why Britain and America want to do that in episode 25, and it's also another example of the focus on fake news, which began around the time of the 2016 election campaign, towards the end of it. The claim that Russia was spreading fake news and misinformation around the internet to try to get Trump elected, which is itself fake news, as is the claim that Russia was cyber-hacking the elections. If evidence is presented, then I'll say, okay, they're both true, but both have never been proven with evidence, just claims about what Russia's done. But this is the point. The establishment, authority, government, media, mainstream media, never communicates fake news. Never. Anyone else saying anything else, even if true and supported by evidence and information, is communicating fake news. That's the fact of life authority wants people to believe. I've said before that this perception begins in school, where you're told to believe the authority figure in the form of the teacher, and whatever they say must be true, because they're saying it. And most children do without question, and they take this perception with them throughout their lives that authority, or the system, knows best and is always right. And that's the perception that allows the world to be run ultimately, not only, but ultimately by a tiny few, once you have the structure in place, and it's a very simple structure. So people watch the news every night or find the news through Facebook and Twitter increasingly nowadays. And they hear government figures and political leaders making statements and people, in many cases, believe them without question, especially when it's about a terrorist event like 9-11, which I can tell you, having researched it, is an obvious example of fake news. There's so many holes in the 9-11 story. And when you've researched it, it stands out like glowing neon lights, that it was obviously a setup, manipulated into place, long-planned terrorist event. And as I said, the perception is authority only speaks the truth. Authority does not spread fake news. Only people on the internet do that. Authority, true. Internet, rubbish. That's the perception in what people to have. But what about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? What about Russian cyber hacking? They're both fake news. One we now know was fake news, although it was pretty obvious at the time. I didn't know at the time. I was only 12 or 13 when Iraq was invaded. But when you look at it, chemical weapons was not why they invaded Iraq, that was just the excuse. And the other, we can't yet take seriously the Russian cyber hacking because they've not yet produced sufficient evidence to back up their claim. So those are both examples of fake news, but because government and the media say it, it must by definition be true. That's what people believe when they hear these claims from authority. In the article it says, misinformation is being spread about feminism, vaccines and GM foods. Well, the Rockefellers, the Rockefeller family, second, only to the Rothschilds and the elite, less than 1%, the deep, deep state, the deep, deep, deep state, are massively behind feminism. Feminism, when it began, was a way of getting women into work to tax them like men, and thus away from the home, creating divide and rule between men and women, and men and even transgender nowadays. Feminists also largely support Rockefeller organisations like Planned Parenthood, which is a eugenics operation. Feminists also largely support abortion and birth control. This all suits the elite goal of depopulation. Anyone criticising or asking questions of feminism is called sexist or bigoted. So what? I've talked about pharmaceutical medicine and hospital treatment in episode 17 and that and of course one of the forms of treatment people get or one of the means of apparently preventing illness is vaccines. And I've talked about GM food in episode 26. Genetically modified food is there to genetically modify us. Fortunately there's no genetically modified food in Britain. And if there is any sold, it has to be labelled, which is why there's not much. It doesn't really exist in, in Britain, or England at least. 
but in places like America, it's all over the place. And food doesn't have to be labeled in America either, which is even worse. I explain how and why genetically modified food is there to genetically modify the population in episode 26. As for the Salisbury nerve agent attack, I've talked about that in episodes 7, 9, 11 and 33. As I said, the story keeps changing every five minutes, and when you look at it, there's questions to be answered about that event. But the whole goal of fake news is to make people believe there's no credibility to anyone asking these questions. The mainstream media is not asking. And to censor alternative information and opinion, which would include information in questioning of the official narrative of the Salisbury poisoning story. There is more to know about all these subjects, and many, many more, but this focus on fake news is designed to try to stop people knowing more. The fake news focus was designed not to target genuine fake news. Authority wants fake news because it gives them the excuse to target the real target of fake news. The fake news scam was designed not to target genuine fake news. Authority wants fake news because it gives them the excuse to target the real target of the fake news focus, which is those communicating information challenging the official narrative. That's who fake news is designed to target, or rather, the information itself more accurately. It's a means of trying to discredit genuine research in what's become known as the alternative media, alternative to the mainstream. And more specifically, that part of the alternative media that does check facts and does hold itself to account in terms of the information it communicates, that lives for sources so it can verify information. Because that's the difference between the genuine media within the alternative media and the rest of the alternative media. Fake news is designed to try to discredit those sources of information so the official narrative rules okay. There is a solution to fake news though. There is a solution. And you don't need any censorship or laws if people did this. Research. If people took responsibility for their own perceptions, then you don't need any censorship or laws because people know whether information is fake news or genuine because they've researched it for themselves. And people say, oh, well, I don't have time to research information. Well, okay, but don't believe anything then. Don't believe anything until you've researched it and question everything. That's the fail-safe solution to fake news. But of course, authority doesn't want a real solution. It just wants people to accept its solution, which is censorship of anything challenging the official narrative as this war on alternative thought and opinion continues. But the two aces we have at our disposal are research and saying the unsayable. And we need to use them now. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.